0: I enjoy helping people understand what they're capable of because many people have no idea. Yeah. And sport taught me that through the people who taught me but also who I watched. Yep. And I think so many people go through life having no idea what they're capable of doing because they're not prepared to make them so – and, again, it's another one of those words, step out of your comfort zone. But no one knows what it really means. (laughs)
1: Hello everyone, welcome to Humans, I'm Luke McCredden and this is episode 28. In this episode I'm joined by Chris Anstey. For those with an interest in sport, you might recognise the name. For those with an interest in basketball, you will definitely know the name. Chris is one of Australia's greatest basketball players, I'm saying, and spent lots of time overseas, Europe and in the US playing too. Don't despair though if you're not a basketball fan because some of the messages and insights into Chris's mind are brilliant and some of the ideas he shares with us, anyone can take on board and enjoy and and take something from. Really great guy, very lucky to have him on the podcast and I am very grateful and thankful for his time. This is episode 28 of Humans with Chris Anstey. Chris, what a pleasure to have you here. It's great to be here. I can genuinely say you are the tallest guest I've ever had on the podcast.
0: And I can genuinely say this is the smallest <laughs> podcast room I've been in. i mean like, no, this is good.
1: I even feel like this is a small room, so I can't sort of imagine what it feels like for you at the moment. So, well done for uh, putting up with it. Um, thank you again for coming in. It's it's a it's a it's a blast. I um, we sort of connected through a mutual friend, I suppose, um, and which which was great. It's always handy when you can when you have a connection. Um, but I've got to say, and um, one of the things that triggered me to sort of, I suppose, you know prompt prompt her to get us in touch was um i read an article you did or a blog you did recently on the sports power australia website or in fact both of them and i just thought and that's that's something that this is kind of encapsulates what this podcast is about it's more than just what you see it's the stuff behind it and so the the chance story around around you um Beating Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls, I suppose, was was what just grabbed me as a basketball fan. But I do urge anyone listening: this isn't just going to be all about basketball, <laughs> <laughs> as much as we probably want it to be. That um, blew my mind, and and I want to I wanted to ask you a bit about that um, idea of there is a chance, no matter what the number yeah, is.
0: It's ironic that. By pure chance, um, ended up watching Dumb and Dumber last night. Did you? you uh, league. <laughs> and, and it's kind of, and as I watched it, it it's what I kept referring back to. And it, it's funny when you know Lloyd Christmas says to Mary, Smiley, asks what the chances of a girl like him ending yeah. up with a guy like her <laughs> yeah. is, and it ends up being one in a million. He says, so you're telling me there's a chance. And uh, I suppose that was my experience with basketball. Mm. In general, as well as in this one particular game, because I certainly didn't get into it in the traditional manner, mm. um, and I always liked the fact that I considered myself naive. Um, you know, so often in anything that we do in sport and in life, we we presume to know the outcome before we even attempt the yeah. task. Yeah, and you know, over the years, it it occurred to me that the best players that that I ever played against or the hardest to compete against weren't necessarily the most talented. They were the ones who could replicate their effort every damn single time. They never gave you a possession off. And, you know, we all know the answers as adults to to most of life's questions because they're all written in front of us, they're in books, they're everywhere. And, you know, what we can't replicate in a book or what we can't add is emotion. Mm. And when we get emotional, we make poor choices more often than not um and that's and that's what sport gives us because it is emotional and uh, yeah i found myself you know was it back in 1998 uh in march walking onto a basketball court to play against michael jordan and the chicago bulls and he'd announced his retirement this was the last dance that that Mm. promoted that and uh I went through the absolute full spectrum of emotions. I was excited, <laughs> I was nervous, I was anxious, all of these different things. but I, and I got to the game, I looked down the other end of the floor and and there was Michael Jordan. Mm. And as much as I'd become accustomed to playing against some pretty big names, yeah, this was different. And I'd been starting. i'd be, I was playing okay, and so I fully expected to start again. <laughs> And I didn't play a minute in this first half. So with all these emotions and my family was in the crowd because they'd come, they'd flown from Australia to watch the Bulls and my friends were there, I didn't play a second. and So all of a sudden my emotions switched to, to anger and frustration and all these sort of things at halftime. I just thought this is the only chance I'm ever going to get mm. and it's been taken away from me. So I won't go into all the thoughts I had at halftime, but they weren't great. But I got on in the second half and I suppose with that whole – vortex of emotions that I'd experienced over the last few hours. The first minute or two I was on, I was so bad. I was, <laughs> I, I just didn't feel like I was meant to be there. I felt like they would have been looking around thinking, who the hell's this guy? And the first time I touched the ball, I actually went up to try to dunk it and Michael Jordan fouled me. And the worst thing I did when I walked back to the free throw line was I looked around and you see Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, Dennis Rodman, <laughs> Phil Jackson, Steve Kerr, Luke Longley. <laughs> and I just felt, what am I doing here? And I shot two of the worst free throws I've ever shot in my life. And I suppose that that was the moment for me that I thought I couldn't get any worse. And it's funny, oftentimes <laughs> in life, it's, yeah. it takes, I wouldn't by any stretch profess that to be rock bottom. But in that game, yeah. that was as low as I could have gotten. Yeah, yeah. I thought, bugger it, just get back to what you do and... The coach for some reason kept me in and you know, we found a way to come back and my teammate Cedric Sabalos hit a, a three almost on the buzzer to send the game into overtime and I played most of overtime and had probably the best three and a half minutes personally of the game. I hit a jump shot, I had a dunk, I got into a little scuffle with mm. Dennis Rodman and we won. And you, know, you probably don't learn a lot of the lessons in sport and in life when they happen, you learn them months and years yeah. after and it, it was only then it sort of occurred to me, you know, what are the odds of that happening? Yeah, It's just, it would have been unheard of. And, you know, I've always carried it with me that, you know, again, before the game, I I actually remember thinking, hang on, but we, we're not going to lose 250 to zero. So it's possible to score. Yeah. You know, but is it possible to replicate it? And they're not going to score every time. Clearly it's possible to stop them. Mm. So why can't we do it more often? And that's, how I've approached a lot of things. And, you know, you look back and, like you say, the chances of that happening were yeah. so minuscule. But to go back to the Dumb and Dumber reference, if the one exists, why can't it be the first time? And if it's not the first time, why not the next time? And mm. so on and so forth. But I find so many people either never it or give up really quickly and without ever knowing that the one's just around the corner. And Here's us. And we've been chatting for three minutes. The first, que- the first story I'm telling you is something that happened twenty three <laughs> years ago. Because you have these moments that stick with you, yeah. or you find these opportunities that stick with you, and. They're unforgettable.
1: And I think, I just think there's a great message in it. Um, Obviously, the story's great uh, in itself. um, You know, to add to it, I suppose, too, the the Bulls were obviously at the top of their game. And and you guys, with all due respect, we were shit. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, We were terrible. (laughs) You said it. That's okay. Um, But I think the message is great. And I think it's something that, you know, interestingly enough, recently in the last couple of weeks, um, had a conversation with my 11 year old daughter nearly 11 year old daughter about she was you know had to do a presentation in front of her class and was petrified obviously you know it, it's and 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 it was to i think they had to be then elected to be part of this sort of group or whatever and i said you know my message was just that it was like a there's because she'd written it written it off and i'm not gonna i'm not gonna be able to do it and i said well you won't if you won't don't try it for starters and secondly having a crack is better than the result anyway. You know and and I kind of think you know even if you guys lost that game there's still probably something to take away from even just putting it put putting it uh you know pushing it to them. Um, uh,
0: yeah, absolutely. And you know what it's I've been coaching a long time now and I hope that I remain true that I'll never have a problem with any of my players making a skill error because mm. I want them to push their boundaries and I want them to explore what they're capable of what I have an issue with as a coach. And I think I had at the end of my career as a teammate was, I call them effort errors mm. where you're not quite attempting to be your yeah. best or decision-making as in selfish errors where it becomes about you. Yeah. If you're trying your best and you're doing what and you're trying to fill your role and you make a mistake, that's okay. We can work with you and we can help you improve. But yeah. if you're selfish or lazy, that's where you're probably not going to find yourself on the team for much longer. So but I mean, it's it's like anything that I found myself in this sort of space sitting in, like not in a podcast, but in this area because my son loves it. Um, I heard from Hamish and Andy, I listen to that with my son, yeah, and even they are horrified at what they sounded like when they first started doing a podcast, and yeah. they say that they had every reason to quit at the start because they weren't very good, but... They kept finding things to do wrong because every time they did something wrong, they learned something else that didn't work. And yeah. it's Thomas Edison with the light bulb. There's yeah. stories all through history. <laughs> exactly. but But it's true yeah. that if we're scared of doing something because we'll fail, we'll never figure out if we can become better at it.
1: Do you find that hard to, as a coach, to put to your, your team or, or, yeah. or your guys so, that you're, or girls that you're coaching and, and um, to give them that confidence? Yeah, I do.
0: Confidence is a hard thing Yeah, because – one of the common threads that I continually get is I'm used to coaches telling me what I can't do. Right. And if you look at it, it's like parents. How often do we tell our kids not to do things? We tell them off, so we keep restricting what they're capable of because we feel like we need to control them. Mm. Um, and I'm not for any, for a second, suggesting we just let our kids run rampant or a, there needs to be strategy behind yeah. it. But yeah. I still think we need to explore what, or allow people to explore what they're capable of. But yeah, know, it's, it's a really tricky one, but it, it, it really is instilling confidence for me is preparation and mm. having someone who believes that you can do it even in the days that you can't. And even today I've had a couple of conversations with athletes that you know, there's always a but, why can't I? I, I can't, I, but you keep telling me I can. Yeah, and I'll keep telling you you can mm. because I see it. Mm. I just need to get you there. And once you've done it once – See if I went, if I'd be dumb enough if I played the Chicago Bulls again. I'd, I've done it now, I've proven it's possible. <laughs> you can do it again, and that was. Yeah. I think that was the thing when I played as well. I know, I know I'm jumping over the place a bit, but when I first came back to the Melbourne Tigers from Europe, the Sydney Kings had won three championships in a row, and there was just this sense in the group of they're unbeatable. Mm. And as much as we, when I say we, Daryl McDonald, who was my co-captain, and I, told the group that we we believed that we had to prove it. Yeah. And the minute we beat them for the first time in the regu- in a regular season game, the group came in like we'd won a championship. We'd only won a- and we'd won by two or three and played out of our brains. Mm. And I'll never forget D walking in and saying, "What are you happy about? All we've done is proven we can beat them when it matters. Yep. Now, now, next time we ask you, can we beat them? You actually believe it." Because you've seen it, you're not just saying yes because yeah. you think it's the right answer.
1: Yeah, the the mentality shift is amazing, isn't it? Once it happens once, and and that belief sets in. Um, but getting there is is the challenge. And I, I you're absolutely right. From a parent or, or a coach uh, or any sort of ma- managerial role, that instilling that belief is is such a challenge, isn't it?
0: Yeah, and it's it's having them understand that if they don't do it, it's going to be okay.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: I'm, I'm not going to punish you. I'm going to work with you to help and mm. there's a lot of people are embarrassed by failure mm. um, and they try to avoid it so they do things that they're comfortable with and they've always done.. Yeah. Um, the special groups I've been a part of are the ones who are prepared to just jump out on a ledge and see if they can fly and if they don't someone will be the, will be there to catch them really quickly. yeah. but even a training and again I, I, I picked this one up from Al Westover is that as players we'd have ideas. And he'd always give the players five or ten minutes at the end of practice if we needed it to try what we wanted. So for him, even he was seeing if things worked that he'd never thought of. Yeah. And it was no, it was a win-win situation because if they worked, we'd add them. Yeah. We'd all be on board because they our ideas as a playing group <laughs> and so we're, we're invested. And if they didn't work, then we'd stop bitching about it and telling him he should do things differently. <laughs> but his only rule was we had to actively and to our best ability try his way first. Yeah. Because we couldn't assume – again, we couldn't assume it wasn't going to work so we didn't commit fully to it.
1: Yeah. As a young player, young athlete, did you have that belief?
0: No. 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 I, you know, Brian Gorgian put that in me. Um, and, again, my belief and my confidence was based on the fact that I knew I worked harder than most people I'd ever met. Yeah. And I certainly worked harder than what I knew myself to be capable of. And that included in the weight room on the floor, as in on the basketball floor, um, committing to my diet away from the sport before it became a thing Um, and everything associated with being a professional athlete because I thought that I was behind and I was Mm -hmm. behind everyone. So there is a sense that the harder you work and the more you invest in yourself, the less you want to give it up. So one of my dumb little routines before every single game I played was we always played the National Anthem and so you'd you'd face up looking at the other team with the flag in the middle of the floor more often than not. And I used to go down the opposition team, look each one in the eye, they probably weren't looking at me, but in my head I thought I worked harder than you, I worked harder than you, I worked <laughs> and I went down. Now that didn't make me a better player, but I knew what I'd, I'd invested to be on the floor in this time, so I wasn't just going to be poor today and give it up, they were going to have to beat me. Yeah. I wasn't going to beat myself, which happens a lot in sport.
2: Mm.
1: What about when you stepped on the floor? How old were you when you went to the States?
0: I was 22.
1: So I was a 22-year-old stepping onto the floor, and and I jotted down some uh, names earlier just because I was thinking. So the 97-98 season, was that?
0: Yeah, I got drafted in 97, so my last NBL season was 96-97. It was seasons back then, so 1997, yeah. Yeah.
1: So I was just thinking um, as a as a centre, your position, yeah. um, you would have been looking while you were at the American National Anthem, yeah, yeah, you would have been staring yeah. in the face of Shaq, Shaq and Wan, and
0: Robinson, Robinson, Duncan, these
1: yeah, guys. A young Tim Duncan who yep. was dominating in his first season <laughs> yep. there. Um, even, you know, you know, like Karl Malone and these intimidated yep. – Rodman, what did that do for your um, confidence or, or – I it- learned
0: really, really quickly that I needed to learn to shoot. Yeah. because if I had to, <laughs> if I had to get into a wrestle with them and play in the post I was dead yeah um, but I mean they're, they're just a different level. I think that's a thing with sport as Australia is very isolated and we do have a very small population mm. when you're involved in a global sport and sometimes we forget how big and strong and athletic the rest of the world is and you know as much to, it's my it's still my pet peeve with basketball here in Australia is we invest so much time on skill development we don't allow enough time for physical development because if I asked anyone at any level, or most levels, who the hardest opposition they've ever come across was, you very rarely say they were the best ball handler or the best mm. shooter, but they were the fastest or they were the strongest or, the, right. or, they, the, or they were the biggest. Yeah. So we need to continually invest time and effort into creating faster, stronger athletes as well as more skilled athletes. And that's what the United States got. Yeah. And that's what they actually have because their population's so great. They're yeah. able to select from that's right. Bigger, more athletic bodies. So that that was the biggest difference. And, you know, I was always quite quick for my size. Yeah. Um, which allowed me some advantages. Not, I mean, I wasn't there that long to mm. exploit them for further, but um it was intimidating at the start, but it became something that you see one every day. And yeah. even some of the smaller names, there was a, a there was a guy that played for Cleveland. I can't even recall his Olapenko, Olapenko, a Big Eastern European guy. It was he was built like you couldn't move him. <laughs> and so, yeah, it, yeah, some of the names you haven't heard of or yep. forget, as I've clearly proven, are the hardest ones.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah, it's 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 incredible to think about the because when you watch, you know, even going back to uh, watching clips from. The dream team in '92, and that when when they take the court against other countries, they're they, you, you're right, they're visibly bigger and stronger, yet not necessarily mo- more skillful, even in some cases than some. Right. But it, it obviously is such a big part of hitting floor. So, did you find that that um, coming back to Australia or, or vice versa, as far as the training sort of regimes yeah. go, that their focus was more? On the strength, Yeah,
0: look at the Magic, it wasn't – his name was Potapenko, by the way. Um uh, Yeah, it was. It was – I mean, the Magic was ahead of its time, the Southeast right. Melbourne Magic, where we were in the weight room five days a week in the off-season and three or four during the season okay. when no one else was yeah. doing that. Um, and it kept us on the floor. It kept us – it reduced our injury. I mean, everyone knows this now mm. – um, so it wasn't necessarily the time invested. So, like I said, sometimes it was the genetic pool that you're selecting from. But mm, yeah, they were invested in being quicker and stronger, and they they trained on court a lot less. So as a basketball league here in Australia, we're the most overtrained, underplayed league in the world, where we play less games and train far more often. Right. Um. So we don't have time because our bodies are continually being burnt down at two and a half hour trainings. Because you think about it. A, a, a normal training session is an hour and a half to two hours where every player is involved for most minutes. Yep. A game, every player is involved for 25 yeah. or 30. So <laughs> the volume of work yeah. and training is higher than a game. Um. So, yeah, it's it, st- it still becomes exactly that. But I'll tell you what, when I got back here to Australia, it, it was amazing how much the game slowed down for me. Right, It, it just seemed slower. Yeah. And I seemed like I, I could just... I could read plays better, I could anticipate better because I was used to – my normal became so much quicker. Yeah, um, And, you know, I was able to – and even after Russia, I had a really good three years in Russia. went. By the time I came home, I was able to be reasonably successful on the teams I was on because comparative to Russia in a physical point of view and comparative to America in a physical and speed point of view – the NBL was really slow mm. and really small. Yep. So, you know, as much as we hate admitting that, and nobody who's employed by the league's <laughs> allowed to say it, yeah, we, we have caught up a lot yep. in, the, in the last ten years. But back then, mm. you know, it, it became easier.
2: Yeah,
1: it's the. Where do you see the league moving? The NBL, the like, you know, the Australian league. I mean, uh, just off air, we mentioned sort of early nineties or something. I remember it, it seemed huge and maybe i was younger and smaller but you know i felt like arenas were packed out Um, there was some sort of you know some franchise players so to speak yourself but you know gays copeland all these sort of guys that would would people in melbourne would go and see and then obviously that sort of disappeared uh for some reason and it's building up i know it's a great league now and they're and they're really got some good support behind it is it Building still? And yeah, it, it is.
0: I don't, the thing is, I don't think we need to compare ourselves to other people. I think There's mm. another one of your lessons that you try to instill into kids and players is stop comparing yourself to other people. Yeah. Just work on improving yourself. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. as a league, we need to continue to do – we don't need to be better than a Euro league or be even compare ourselves to it because we're not competing for the hap- same market. Has that
1: been happening to you, do you oh, think? There's always
0: talk about it, but at the end of the day, professional sport's no different a business. You get what you pay for. Yep. And we – Australia as a nation doesn't have as much money as Russia or as some of the bigger European nations. Certainly not the United States. Mm. So we miss the very top tier imports and always have because we can't afford we can't afford two million dollars a year for an import. Yeah, China can.
1: What about the idea of the rookies like Lamello Ball last year? We saw coming across and doing that. That that's that boosted the profile straight away. and, yeah, and, did, and even more so now that he's giving, giving having a good run in the and NBA. That, I
0: think that's the market. Is that he his choice was college. Mm. Um, which is an unpaid, and he had no intention of graduating anyway. So he earns, he still earned a quarter of a million dollars, which is a good salary. Yeah. Um, played against men, but I think the greatest thing for someone so young, and even you know RJ Hampton who played at New Zealand is we speak English. Yeah, we're playing through summer. It's a welcoming country for yourself yep. and your family. So it's not a jump off the cliff and have no support. I mm. think we do a pretty good job of making sure that they can fit in reasonably seamlessly because our basketball community is very americanized. Yeah. So they it's a long way from home for them. They fit in, they come back having played against bigger players and Yeah. you see how well the Mello Bulls doing this year which yeah. you know bodes well for for more young players yeah, coming across. For
1: sure. Um, you mentioned obviously what some money that he came across as as a 22-year-old Australian kid yourself going to the states. Um I, and I mean, I know this can be a bit personal, but the paychecks that these guys are getting over there, whether they're rookies or, you know, you know, about to retire or anywhere in the middle, seem unbelievable to, to most people that look on the internet and see the salaries of, of what these guys are. are getting. Did you find... Uh, even in your position, that it was a bit overwhelming. Oh yeah,
0: I, I walked in and signed a contract for three million US dollars when the it was fifty. Yeah, the Australian yeah. Uh, the US dollar was fifty. Sorry, the Australian dollar was fifty US cents, and th- that's the part where you sort of sit back. And, I, I thought I was doing incredibly well back then, making sixty thousand dollars a year at the Magic, and <laughs> now they're giving me that every two weeks. It, it's stupid. Yeah. Um. So you you do tend to get ahead of yourself a little bit and. Yeah, that, that's probably the thing, and I've spoken to a few guys who've gone to the NBA, and I was still very, you know, Luke Longley was incredible to me over there, um, but there weren't any other Aussies over there outside right. of Shane for a couple of days, and then Gaze was there for a little bit with the Spurs, but and he was obviously a very established player, but you get $3 million, and all you want to do is make sure you get every cent, and Don't, start. and then the lockout happened. Oh. So we missed out on half of our salaries that year that we never got back, but... You know, the advice I've always got is the first one, it's the second one that you get rich because, I mean, I've been divorced now so you lose most of what you've earned in in divorce and it's the second contract and being able to stick around and and make sure that you're great at something which I wasn't quite able to do after the Olympic Games in Sydney. I didn't get my second contract. Um, So, you know, in hindsight I would have done a few things differently but yeah, as someone who'd only been playing the game for four years, I've found out a place and someone's given me three, you know, three million US dollars and mm. then said, here's a quarter of a million dollars up front, have fun. <laughs> you can imagine, especially with the people who I would probably describe as a little less level-headed, mm. imagine giving to, to young kids who've grown up with nothing and saying, here's $10 million dollars, yeah. Be humble yeah. and be sensible. Yeah. It just doesn't work. No. There's, a, there's an amazing
1: stat, and I don't I can't remember the exact number, but it was something outrageous like 80% of NBA players end up broke it's, or something you, like that. They spend what they have. I, I mean, mean that, it seems so hard to get your head around thinking that even, you know, most of us would be happy for yeah, <laughs> whatever, yeah. but, you know, you're talking about hundreds of millions. Yep.
0: How can you lose it? Bad advice, bad yeah. people around you, and it's – you know over the years again, that's the, the agent I had was incredible. His name's Leon Rose, and he always made sure that I sent home ninety five percent of my salary. I had to live on five percent right. and then we work an investment. but I think anyone, especially when you're young, you need to have not people patting you on the back around you, but people who are genuinely looking out for your long-term yeah. best interest because you can you can set yourself up but at the same time you, Need to not have that money accessible, yeah, and then get it put away, get it invested, get yourself protected, even in relationships. And if you get someone like that, you know, it, yeah, it makes a big makes difference sense. down the track. Yeah, and
1: that—I mean—that I know it's—it's it's not the millions that that we talk about in necessarily in U.S. basketball, but even the footballers in in Australia, you, they're, they're still dealing with a lot of money, and, and a lot of these guys are eighteen to twenty-five, you know, and sure. and, and that money that they've never seen before. Like I said, not the millions, but it's certainly hundreds of thousands, which is a lot to a kid. Like, yeah, So you'd like to think that, the yeah, the, the advice and the guidance is there. I remember hearing um, Charles Barkley on a Dr. Phil podcast. There's two <laughs> names that don't really make <laughs> sense all, together. Yeah. But, and he was saying that, you know, a lot of his friends have, have lost all their money. And he said that one of the biggest things were people ringing you saying, I need some money. Right. And a lot of people can't say no. Yep. And he had to with his manager I think or agent or whatever had to learn how to say even to relatives no
0: and and I guess even just further and I've never been in that position like he is but if you don't have access to it you can't give it away Mm. yeah Um, yeah true so and that's sort of Case in point, a little bit, and again, emotion becomes involved because they're your family or they're your close friends. So, we can all make the right choices sitting here in a podcast studio, but then you add emotion, (laughs) it becomes a very different decision.
1: It's funny, and that just goes back to what we're saying off the top: is not that emotion changes everything. You know, you can you can sort of, you can say, you could you could guess the result of lots of different things, but that's just on paper. But it's what until you put some emotion behind it. You know, it's
0: funny. I I got into a habit years ago, even in relationships if we got into a pretty – and we all have arguments with, with mm. people that we love, daughters, family, partners, whatever it might be, I'd actually – I've got to leave. And I, I walked out and I'd go to the pub, I'd go to a mate's place, I'd just clear my head. Yeah, And a couple of times I come back, every time I have an argument you just leave. I said, yeah, I do. Because with emotion I want to I want to yell ten things at you. Yeah, And probably eight of them I don't really mean, but I just feel like I need to win this argument. Yeah, So I leave – and then, oftentimes, I'll come back and there'll be two things that continually—they're the things I need to say. Yeah. And I'll come back. I will say, "Yeah, I do," but here's what I want to say. Yeah. And it kind of diffuses it a little bit, but you don't go and say something that you can't unsay.
1: And that's the hardest part is removing yourself from those situations. And it's like you said with you know, with kids, it's the same. And and when they rile you up, it's you know, or, or your partner, or a friend, or a work colleague, or something. You're, yeah. Yeah. It's very easy to just. Say things off the cuff, but you, know, yeah, you know you don't mean it. But to remove yourself, I mean that's a big that's a big effort. You know that takes that takes something to actually do that, and it's it, yeah, it's hard, but it's it certainly pays off in the
0: end. And then, you know, funnily enough, that's kind of the way I coach now as well. Is that uh, you've, you've, we've all seen videos of post game sprays. Yeah. <laughs> There's nothing to be gained. The the yeah. players know they lost, yeah, and the, or the players know they had individually bad games. Mm. I don't need to remind them of that. Yeah. You know, I've got to remind them that I'm on their side. Mm. And then again, I'll drive home or I won't sleep that night or whatever it is, but I'll figure out what the actual teaching points are that I can help with. Yeah. And then you move forward. It doesn't matter if you tell them that night or in two days' time. They're, they're adults or they're 18, 19. They're smart enough. Yeah, you know, We've got to give them a little bit of credit for figuring. When, when the kids are young, you send kids to your room, right?
2: Yeah,
0: They go away. They're <laughs> in their room for now. They come back. They're better. They've had time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs>
1: You just yeah. diffuse it. Did you? Um, what about in game? You know when you when you because it's kind of different because I yep. suppose it, there's still a result that's yep. waiting. So the emotion, how do you take the um, emotion out of it? You,
0: you, it's hard. Yeah, and you don't, I don't think you have to, but you need to have built relationships with your players where they know that I'm going to coach quick and I'm going to coach. I've, I've, if I've got to give you a message in four seconds, don't expect it to be postcard sugar coated. Yeah. <laughs> um, you all, and so I essentially buy myself a leave pass with the way I deliver messages for two hours a week, yeah, oh, or how many games i have got. But because I'm yelling at you across the court, I'm telling you really quickly on the bench doesn't mean I think any different. And we'll, no. talk, but, but I mean, there's not time in a game to put your hand on someone's knee and say, "Hey, look, the the way I saw this was this," yeah. and in the future, you've just got to. I need you to sprint your lanes harder. Yeah. Stop jogging, whatever it might be.
1: I suppose if you've got that relationship with the playing group and they it's, know it's that's how crucial you, uh, crucial portray those messages, then yeah, I guess it. I guess it's easier for them too to understand. Yep. Um, did you? Uh, the times have changed a lot in <clears throat> communication and how, and even from coaches um, relay messages like that. Did you cop any sprays when you were oh, you know yeah. in the yeah. NBL NBA? Yeah.
0: Plenty, gorge and Plenty and, yeah, there was one that, you know, Gorge, I'll, I'll never forget and uh, Gorge called me up to his, his office at the stadium after training one day just before I got drafted and there'd been NBA scouts around and in a, in a reasonably diplomatic way but very straightforward confronted me with, you know, you're selfish. You've turned into this selfish guy and it's all about you. And I knew that wasn't true because I knew you know, in hindsight years later maybe there were some things where I got a little bit self-centred because I was thinking about what they thought about me. But Mm. um, I I literally walked out of his office in tears, grabbed my bag and left to the extent where everyone in the team was like, what the hell? Mm. And I got home and I was crying because I I never wanted to be selfish. Mm. And I loved the team and I loved the players and the whole group. So for someone to say that about me and I disagree so strongly, hurt. And but but this is the thing: is that an hour later, John Dodge is on, who's the captain of our team at the time, is on my doorstep with a six pack of beer, going, "Come on, big fella, let's have a chat." And we just sat down and drank a few beers each. We vented about. It. Oh, I had no intention of going to go on a training the next day, but by the end, and so the next day. The stubbornness of, what was I, 22 years old, I was like, I'll show him how I'm selfish. I'm so I ran my lane every time. I didn't shoot the ball once. I passed it every time. I just jumped over people for rebounds. Looking back, as a coach now and somebody who's been – it was genius by Gordon. <laughs> yeah, but his, his thing was always address an issue before it becomes an issue. If, if he okay. caught a glimpse of it, yep. let's stamp it out before – yeah. Yeah. So – yeah, yeah, he had plenty of sprays. Barry Barnes was one as a national coach who I don't think anyone escaped a spray and <laughs> Yeah, again, it's it's the relationship you have with the person before they yeah. spray you, I think that I suppose dictates how you receive the spray.
1: I watched uh the YouTube clip of Don Nelson running through the game we spoke yeah, about. Yeah, that's earlier. a great and That's that's fantastic. It is and, and I love that yeah, you know, he's he obviously this was I think the end of that season, he did that video. I yes. think, and and he really spoke with he, pride. He was really proud of that game and, and and the playing group, and and you could really get that sense. And one thing he spoke about, which made me laugh, was the altercation. Well, you know, I suppose altercation you had with Dennis Rodman, yep. and he really was proud that you just stood up and smiled at him and and let him know if you want to play rough, mate. <laughs> was, <laughs> was that how it Went down. I mean, did because. Um, you didn't look phased one bit in I the wasn't, footage.
0: I, I wasn't phased one was I mean, what's he going to do? Yeah. You know, I mean, is he, he's not going to throw a punch. No, but it's um, Dennis
1: Robin, You never know.
0: <laughs> yeah, sure, but yeah, it was funny, again, that naivety. And yep. I had another one like that with Dwayne Wade in a, in a pre-season you – know, sorry, in a pre-tournament game before the Beijing Olympics years later. Right. And, I didn't verbalise it as well with Dennis Rodman. I just laughed at him and said a couple of dumb things about having to go because I knew he wouldn't. Yeah. Um, but later on, the one with Dwayne Wade when I was, was, I know, by this stage I was 30 or 32 or something like that and I knew it was my last Olympics. I was coming off the bench behind Bogut and mm. more a veteran presence and he'd had a bit of an altercation with one of our guys. I stepped in and he started talking. And as calm as anything, I just said, "Mate, take a swing. You've got a lot more to lose than what I do." <laughs> and he's looked at me all confused, like "What?" And I'm like, "What are you gonna do?" Yeah, I mean, <laughs> they're not gonna do anything.
1: No, yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? It's it's a it's a funny um, it's a funny environment because it's yeah you know, um, when you think about rugby or football or something, it's it's a very physical sport where you can probably get people. You know, behind yeah, you know, cheap cheap way. You you can't get away with it in basketball, really. Um you could probably drop an elbow here and there. But you're yeah. right, it's it's when these tough guys, so to speak, bring it up to you. <laughs> I think that's a great response. I
0: always found laughing at them <laughs> confusing. Yeah, the the real tough guys, yeah. you laugh at them and you smile and um you know, even it was actually funny. There's a couple of guys even in the NBA when I came back and they'd be hitting me and pinching me and I'd just smile, I said <laughs> Keep pinching me. D Max got forty. You're so worried about me, idiot. Yeah. Um, And they, you know, one one time when we played um, in the states and, you know, same sort of thing. They get right up in your face. And this is back in the 90s before anyone knew anything. Mm. I used to kiss them, (laughs) and it confused them. Yeah, you give them a kiss on the cheek, and they got so offended, whatever. They they didn't know what to, and it just completely threw them. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Yeah, that's, that's certainly one way to, to mention. Um, I wanted to ask you about like, obviously as a basketball fan, there's a million things to talk about and NBA is always a a hot topic, but as a basketball fan who was passionate about the NBL in the nineties and, um, grew up, you know, watching the Melbourne Tigers, but I wanted to ask you about Andrew Gaze. Like, Because you know we consider and talk about the greats in America and all that, but Gaze was unbelievable from a, from a perspective of yours on the court, um, whether it be a teammate or an opponent. Where does he sit? Like in your eyes?
0: Uh, it's always a tricky one. I mean, it, if you look at individual scoring and the, the some of the things he was able to do, I mean, he was incredible. Yeah, um, he was probably one of the purest scorers. I'd probably say him and Leroy Loggins are this league's ever seen. Yep. Um, you know, so many MVP titles. He's he's the most recognizable. He's the most successful player individually in NBL history. I, I think if you asked him, he'd he'd tell you how hard it is to win championships. Yeah. And and you need help. Um. So that's probably something that, yeah, you know, he won two mm. right, over his entire NBL career. Yeah. I, I think. He would have loved to be Sydney, having won a few more because you know I think everybody remembers the iconic one in 1993 that he won with his dad in the moments yes. after the game. Yep, Yeah. And then he won one again in 1997, which was against us. Um, so I remember that one clearly as well. <laughs> yeah. um, now look, he where does he sit? I've, it's funny because. He had his shot at the NBA. I mean, I don't think I'm telling any shriek. He he was a poor defender. Mm. He, he couldn't keep anyone in front of him, so he got the opposition's some of their lesser. But then he yeah. became great. well, I say on ball defender. He was, so he would shoot lanes, knowing that he could give up shots to. The, and he found a niche at that. But yeah, um, yeah in the NBA, you can't yeah. quite get away with that. And um, yeah, there are so many. I mean, how do you how do you evaluate? or line up Luke Longley compared to Andrew Gaze because yeah. they didn't play in the same league. No. How do you evaluate Ben Simmons and even Dave Anderson who played a career in yep. Joe Ingles? Yeah, yeah. You know, what would have their careers looked like if they had have had 15 years in the NBL? So I've, I've always landed on the fact that, and I hope this doesn't sound as a negative to Andrew, but it's it's I prefer just to appreciate and enjoy the greats. Yeah. I don't need to compare LeBron and Michael Jordan because yep. I'm enjoying LeBron now. Yeah. And I think we just need to enjoy legends of the game, which yeah. Andrew is, when we have them, and don't feel the need to compare them once they're no, no. Just go and appreciate the next legend of the game. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I know that sounds like a cop out answer, but where does he sit? I don't know. I've never put him on a list.
1: No. Well, I suppose more. I, I guess um, to rephrase, where does he, as far as as far as you go, like. You know, without having to rank him or, or, yeah. or just you know, it was it, it was it, a, was it a, one of those guys that you just love to watch yeah, play? he of filled, he filled and stadiums with, yeah, yeah. and he
0: was always, as an opponent, the the guy that the had to you had to the about and yeah. the of the vast majority of your defensive of your what he was what which was opened which then players up other to around him to, yeah. to be more successful so yeah he was his ability to, to manufacture shots in ways that no one was doing. Again, mm. he filled stadiums around the country. Every time – I played one year with him in the top, at, in the NBL, and that was my rookie year, so I just thought it was normal that every time you went <laughs> on the road, it's packed. Yeah. You don't realise that other yeah. teams go to that same game and there are 500 people in the stadium <laughs> when Canberra play Newcastle because yeah. we'd go and there'd be 6,000 people there. So yeah. um, th- that's what he did for the league. He was – One of the most absolute instrumental players in the the spike in I suppose viewership and engagement within Mm. the NBL, and you know it probably sits pretty close when the NBL struggled again was wasn't was around the time that he retired. Yeah, yeah. So I I I wouldn't think that's a fluke.
1: Yeah. If you was who was your hardest opponent in the NBL?
0: Uh, the the two. Well, it's it's interesting. Mark Bradkey. Yeah, uh, because I played against him more than I played against John Dodge and Tony Robinson because they were teammates. So yep. Yep. I still say Dorgy and Tony Robinson because I got them every single day yeah. and they beat me up every <laughs> single day. But then they'd pick me up every yep. single day, um, and that allowed me to eventually be able to compete against Mark Bradke. And then when Tony Robinson went to Perth, when I came back, I thought the matchups were quite good. Um, so they were they were the two big, and again they're the biggest and strongest, but yep. they're also the smartest. Yeah. Um. So it's it's always funny, and you know, I led the team in scoring a few times, and it's the it's the guys who you probably have. You know, there was a there was a guy named um, what was his first name? Grant Kruger played for Newcastle. And his only job was to beat me up in Albert. So <laughs> he'd score four points a game, but he was tough to play against because yeah. he didn't. Care.
1: He was out there just to stop you, yeah. so
0: to speak. Yeah, so I'll you try. get those guys along the way as well. But yeah. you know, th- then you probably had guys like Mark Worthington and Micka vacona who mm. in their time they were different. They were undersized. Yeah, but they met you early. They were they were always there, and they were a different type of physical defender because they didn't have the same size as the other guys. But mm. probably those guys, I'd say,
1: we've got obviously a number of really um, successful players internationally now. Um we've got a great league locally. Um I do you think the uh I suppose at a junior level it's improving in in
0: um no I don't. I I think it's going the other way because we're so invested in having more teams. We don't have enough time for the good teams. Right. Uh availability availability's become an issue and at grassroots level, which we always speak about and hang our hat on as a sport, it's incredible. There are so many young teams playing, and that's great. But we don't have space for the elite.
1: So, what's that? Where's that missing piece then? So, from a grassroots it, level to yeah. say, you know, it, let's just say grassroots to professional. Yep. What's happening in the middle? That's it needs
0: to be in school hours because that's when the stadiums are empty. So, yep. you know, our the thing is in in Australia or in Victoria certainly is that our primary elite competition is you know, the VJBL, which is a Friday night. Everybody knows it. Mm. Um, then your training times you get to a week, but Stadiums sit empty during the school day. If you look at the United States, their high school system includes training, it includes weights, and it, inclu- it includes it's all under one roof. Mm-hmm. We the, the tyranny of distance gets us here. We drive to t- basketball training, we drive to weights if we even do them, mm. and then we we're always in the car. Yeah, so we need to get it under. I, I would love it's never going to happen, but I would love for. The primary elite basketball competition in Victoria to become the schools competition, not representative club competition, because yeah. every club's there to make money. Yeah, um, kids play for the schools anyway, but they so it's there's a oversaturation of what we ask our good kids to do. Mm. Um, and then by the time you step out of school, you drive around Melbourne at any any time with domestic competition, senior competition, and try to get a court. Yeah, to actually do skill development work, it's impossible. Yeah. So, so, it's, so it's go, you need to go to the Institute or you need to go to college I was say, to so improve to that next level.
1: Yeah. So is there is how hard is it for people to get to the Institute? or you know, It's hard. Well, you've got
0: to be at the best. That's the thing. They hand-select the best kids. Yeah. Um, and then that allows them to springboard to it. You look at all of the kids, and I haven't done this, but if you go to the NBA, Ingalls went to Europe, Daly played college, Aaron Baines played college, Bogut played college, uh, who else is in the states at the moment? Um, Mills, um, Paddy Mills went to college. Yep. Yeah, they had to, and yeah, the institute was another common thread as well. Mm. So, we we need to find more space for skill development, not just training. Yeah, and then again, the strengthening, conditioning, but we're in the car. For, we we lose so many hours in the car.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, it's it's it'd be I've, you know I know we're numbers wise, you know we're a small. Country in comparison yeah. to a lot of the European countries and the States and that sort of thing. But, God, we've got some talent here, you know? Yeah, not we do.
0: And, it, uh, yeah, it's sometimes we need to say no as well. We can't give everyone equal opportunity. So the yeah. kids who are doing it for fun, and which is a great thing to do, to play basketball for fun, we yeah. can't afford them the the same amount of time as the kids who are trying to make a career out of it. Yeah. There, there just needs to be a slightly different balance without affecting the politically correct police.
1: yeah. Yeah. So, what, before I wrap up, what are you, what's your position now? Where, where, what do you do? Well, and-
0: <laughs> there's a good question. No, I've learned the term portfolio career. yeah. Okay. Uh, no, I do some corporate <laughs> ambassador work. So, primarily for La Trobe Financial and for the Cedar Education Group. Yeah. Um, do some corporate work individually. I wrote a book over COVID, which is nearly ready to go. And the chapter you mentioned earlier on found its way into the book. Good, good. Um, I still coach. Yep, um, good. Which is great. I've been coaching girls and women now for five years yep. with my daughter being involved in the sport and getting a better understanding of how under-resourced yeah that becomes. And, yes, yeah, so I coach – but I've also got the uh, – I'm head basketball coach at Corfield Grammar and I've been there for 10 years as well, so – I'm working on some projects. Good. Yeah, you know, for when COVID opens us up a little bit with some exciting things on the horizon. Well, I
1: think it's great and we talk about the the youth uh, and that sort of thing and and people role models like yourself and, and people who've been in the in the game for a long time whether it be on you know playing or on the outer like again like yourself can really help drive more of the resources we need or the infrastructure we need or anything like that I think it's a it's a big thing so it's good that
2: you uh, Look, I, I enjoy
0: doing it and you know I sort of found the the space I love with with basketball people yeah. who generally it's late teens because you can still influence habit and behavior yep and they're the things
1: so but so you still like and this is going to sound a really dumb question you still enjoy basketball
0: I, I enjoy sport.
1: Yeah,
0: Um, yeah. Actually, I enjoy people. I I enjoy helping people understand what they're capable of because many people have no idea. Yeah. And sport taught me that through the people who taught me but also who I watched. Yep. And I think – so many people go through life having no idea what they're capable of doing yeah. because they're not prepared to make themselves well, – and again, it's another one of those words, step out of your comfort zone. But no one knows what it no. really
1: means. But you know, do you know what I think and, and, – and this is another – something I actually spoke about with my wife the other day. We are talking about how ridiculous ridiculous it is that school teachers, for example, so when you're 16 or 17 in high school – can say to you, you know, what do you want to do? What do you you want to strive to do? And then we can set you on the right path for you. You don't know what you want to do at fucking 17 years old.
0: There's no such – I strongly believe, and it's something I speak about, there's no such thing as a pathway. No. There are ideas, but the non-negotiables are the way you tread down whatever path you're walking on that particular day. Yeah. So how hard do you work? How do you treat people? How do people feel by being in the same room? And are you investing in yourself every day? And if you do that, and you're on a path to somewhere, and it doesn't work out, you can jump onto another time, any, another one any time you like, yeah. with the right tools to find success. I mean, geez, I, I grew up playing tennis with Dustin Fletcher, who played 400 games of AFL footy until we <laughs> were both 16. Yeah, he became, well, like I said, an, an AFL premiership player in his first year. I went to the NBA. No, no one in basketball suggests that pathway for, because we want. So we, every governing body wants kids to be involved for the mm. money. Yeah. But you've got to do what you're passionate about doing. Yeah. You've got to invest everything into it. And then mm. if you change your mind, that's fine. Yeah. That's absolutely fine. But the habits and behaviours, you can't pick and choose. I no. think you've got to be strong in them.
1: But also, not even as just kids, like as adults, like you do, why at 40 or I'm 37, why do I need to sit there now and go, okay, well, this is the direction, this is me. for well,
0: well, you don't. I don't. And this is the thing with sport is that when you finish playing sport, people say you're retired. Yeah. I like to think of it I'm just changing jobs. Yeah. Because if you go from being an accountant to a firefighter, you didn't retire. No. You just changed careers. Yeah. I think that's how athletes need to view it as well. Yep. Is that you've got a career change coming up. You're not retiring. No. You've still got plenty to do. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, and I just think there needs to be a focus shift away from trying to line something up when you're 16 years old. Like you're going to change – ideas a hundred times by the time you're an adult.
0: And I think it's important not to be defined by what you do as well. Yep. Yeah. There's nothing worse than, oh, it's not. Like, I used to resent being, Oh, you're just about, Or you're a basketball. Cause mm-hmm. I never, I, I just considered myself a human who played basketball and did it well. I never considered myself. Yeah. I never pigeonholed myself into being a basketball player. So no. I was more interested in learning about other things outside of basketball doing other things that no one saw, but basketball was the most visible thing I did.
1: But but even going back though, you probably were pigeonholed as a tennis player at some point. Right. You know, so, so yeah. that
2: quickly changed. Yeah, absolutely <laughs> you did it.
0: You could, now, and it's one of the first things we ask people when we meet them, what do you do? Yeah. And it's, you know, how do you spend your day? There's a bunch of things we can ask before we figure out what they do for, you know, who's a person more so than what do you do to make money?
1: Yeah, what do you do? What now or a year ago? Right. Two? Yeah, it yeah. always <laughs> becomes different. Yeah, it's it can become an awkward conversation. I think it's more about yeah, you're right. Who are you? <laughs> you, yeah. know?
0: The, you know, you talk about the footy, and then eventually you get into it.
1: Yeah, but yeah. yeah, doesn't need to define your judgment of that person. Right. Anyway, <laughs> well, mate, it's been an absolute blast. Um, I I want to finish with one question to you. Could, okay. And, and that's why I ask if you're still a fan of. Basketball, yeah, right. Sure. Looking over at the states at the moment, and this is just a selfish question, sure, because I'm a basketball fan. Yeah. Who, who's the who's the best in the league at the moment?
0: I want to see Brooklyn do well because I played with Steve Nash and consider him a mate. Yeah, and I want him to be successful. I think he will be. And yeah. knowing him as a human, to have that many egos in the locker room and to <sighs> be able to mold them together is something that it takes a personality you like know, that. I think to manage.
1: That's such a great point. We were talking about it the other day about how <clears throat> even just adding like Griffin to that team, and I'm oh, like, what a team. Like Coaching that team I don't think would be as simple as it as it seems. You know, you've got, well, four now very big personalities. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And if there's, you do. There's, if there's a bit of an unbalance in one of those personalities. There's still only one
0: ball, Yeah, and, and you've got to keep people happy. And oftentimes you find historically that the, the greatest scorers of all time aren't the greatest defenders, mm. so you leak a lot defensively, and you need to have your talent buy into defending. Yep. James Harden's not a very good defender. Kyrie <laughs> Irving's not a very good defender. Durant's okay. Yeah. Griffin's old. Yeah. <laughs> so you're four, you know, the ones that you mentioned, yeah. they're going to give up a lot of points as well. So, you, you know, I think they've already – they want to be okay defensively. The Gee's offense looks good at the moment. They're yeah. gonna be hard to stop.
1: It looks pretty scary. Um, mate, thanks again. It's been an absolute blast, Chris. I really appreciate you coming Anytime. down thanks and for uh, me. thanks for squishing into this little <laughs> studio, mate. Good stuff. Thank you. Thanks, Luke.